0: to you and uh, we are grateful for the moms and our church family and the moms and our personal lives and as Matt said up first especially the sacrifices the unique sacrifices that they make on behalf of those we love and the ways in which they showcase aspects and attributes of who our God is to us thankful for you um, today we're going to be continuing on in Matthew and in particular in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel And uh, you can find your way there if you want, while I'm also asking a couple of questions for you to consider. Have you found yourself at any point in time over this past year in a place where you've been concerned with the actions or the behaviors or the decisions of a fellow believer in Christ or maybe hurt by a fellow believer in Christ? I have to imagine that that's more of a rhetorical question than anything. If you live in close and meaningful community with other people, even within the context of the kingdom, God's people, the church, you're going to experience that kind of conflict and that kind of hurt. Secondary question for you then, if you can relate to that, I wonder how many of us have found ourselves stumbling over what to do when we experience this. Whether or not we say something, and if so, how do we say something? What should be our motivation in approaching a fellow believer who perhaps is in sin or who's hurt us, what what do we do if they don't respond well? And is it even worth it? Given the likelihood some kind of conflict could arise out of it, what's the point? Well, if you've had any of these questions or thoughts or experiences, today Jesus has some really important things for you to consider and to say about those questions. And so, if you're not already there, look with me at Matthew chapter 18, as we'll be in verses 15 to 35 today, there are really two different uh, focuses of Jesus's teaching here to his disciples, and uh, the first one really has more to do with what do we do practically when a brother or sister in Christ in the community of saints sins. The second, hand, the second, has to do more with what do we do. Personally, when we've been hurt by a brother, sister of Christ and they continue to sin against us? And to what extent are we called to continue to forgive those who hurt us? Really, those are the two big questions to be answered under this umbrella of dealing with sin in the community of faith. So read with me Matthew 18. And for now, we'll just read verses 15 to 20. If you'd like to follow along, it's on the screen behind me as well. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This passage, especially for those of you who are more familiar with church world or have grown up in the church... Um, has commonly been referred to as the church discipline passage, which is kind of a foreboding name, right? And that isn't not true, um, but I want to point out a couple of truths right up front, a a couple of considerations for you to kind of help you remove yourself from that stigma, um, as true as it may be in some regard. The first is this. Remember the context we've been in. Remember what happened last week. Remember what Jesus was teaching us about with the lost sheep. In other words, this teaching, which flows out of the same teaching, this is all one teaching Jesus is doing, isn't primarily about personal grievances. Instead, church discipline... Is a way of winning back the lost sheep, winning back the wayward brother or sister who strayed from us because of their sin. And so when we enter into church discipline per se, enter into conflict or addressing sin in the community of faith, it should always stem on our part from a sincere heart of concern for that other person. It should not stem from a desire to see vindication for a personal grievance, okay? That's the first disclaimer if you will. The second one is this. While this is an approach that God's people and the church in particular should adopt as a practice for the health of our community, remember that the church as we know it today did not exist at the time Jesus was teaching his disciples this, All right? Jesus never, and, and with that in mind, understand this, Jesus never named specifically pastors or elders and leaders as the one who are to primarily be implementing this, Now, that doesn't mean that Pastor Matt and I won't be involved at some point in a process in which we need to enter in or come alongside of brothers and sisters in Christ to address sin, but hear this, the emphasis in Jesus' teaching, the onus here is on the individual's responsibility, on individual relationships, on our responsibility to one another at the individual level, okay? Okay? So don't gloss over this as just a teaching that's for the church leadership and they're going to deal with all this. No, as you'll see in a moment, Jesus is actually addressing the individual within the community. And so as I'd mentioned up front, there's really two different angles here. The first is a practical instruction that Jesus gives. And how do we go about this? If sin surfaces in our community, if conflict surfaces, how do we go about this? And then we'll get to what happens if... um, if things don't go well? And how do we then handle that on a pilgrim level when we're hurt by other people? So first, the practical instruction. There are really three stages here to this process of coming alongside someone who may be in sin. The first stage is represented in verse 15. We'll also, I'll also refer to it as the first principle here of lovingly coming alongside a brother and sister where there may be sin, and that is this. It is our, your, and my, on the individual level, godly obligation to privately confront a brother or sister who is in sin. Now, in the first service today where we had a little bit more time, I waxed eloquent, or maybe not, but I went on a tangent where I um, gave an explanation behind why I'm actually going to utilize a shortened version of the translation of this first verse. The ESV, the one that you were reading on the screen behind me, the English Standard Version and English Translation, renders it, if your brother sins against you. However, some of the earliest and best manuscripts in the original Greek language omit against you and just have, if your brother sister just sins, go and tell him or her their fault. There are a variety of reasons as to why I believe that's the better understanding here. If you're interested in hearing kind of a mini sidebar on the art and science of textual criticism, how our New Testament in particular came to be, um, the different manuscript copies over the years and and how we understand what was true to the original that the authors of the Bible penned, then you can go back and listen to the video from the first service. But let me just say this. Here's why that's even important. Jesus is then saying here, if in fact he's saying, if your brother and sister sins and he's not focusing this more narrowly on just when it's against you, then Jesus is saying that we as individuals should feel an onus of responsibility for another who is in sin, even if that sin isn't against me or you. If we understand Jesus only to be talking about sin that's against us, then we could be, feel justified in never saying anything to somebody else who's living a life of destruction because the sin isn't affecting us directly. But what this would do is it would eliminate the majority of the safety net that God provides in his people, the church, all these different people who have multiple perspectives and angles and rub shoulders on different levels with us. It would completely remove that safety net. And on our best days, we should see that as a good thing. We want the safety of God working through the entire local church to lovingly confront us in our sin so that we can avert the disaster that sin ultimately leads us down. Okay, so moving forward, just know that I'm not focusing only on sins that are against us, but sins in general, which could include sins against you, okay? So that first principle again, it is your godly obligation to privately confront a fellow believer who's in sin. And I'll be spending the most time here on this first principle. Let's just break that down. It's your godly obligation This answers the question of who. Who should be the one to confront a brother or sister in Christ who is in sin? The individual should. Matthew 18, 15, again, if your brother sins against you, singular, go and tell him his fault, because you, singular, uh, between you, singular, and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, all singular. See, the singular pronouns here throughout this passage means that Matthew wasn't aiming this primarily at church leaders. The instruction here is for the individual members of the community. Again, the question is not, hmm, Joe over here or Jane over here seems to be sinning. I wonder what the pastors are going to do about that. mm -mm. Jesus is saying, the onus is on you. People over the years have come to Pastor Matt and myself with concern with somebody else who's in sin. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's, uh, it's, it's given us the opportunity to offer a second opinion. It's given us the opportunity to coach and counsel. Here's how maybe you should approach that person, because we know that can be an intimidating thing. But almost in every instance, hear this, we will point you back to that person. If you see this, you need to be the one to address it personally. Okay? See, a community of believers such as ours is only as healthy as its individual members are willing to take up the mantle of gently and humbly confronting sin that we see in each other's lives. This is actually one of the hallmarks of the kingdom of God that separates the church, or should, from the kingdom of this world. That we care enough to say something to each other when we see each other on paths of destruction, because we have a robust biblical understanding of the destructive nature of sin, and we don't want to see people go down that path. And so we speak up and we say something, risking the potential conflict that could bring. So it's first your godly obligation to, secondly, privately confront. This answers the how question How are we to confront a brother and sister? And the answer is privately. All right, whenever possible. When you see a sin in someone else's life that you're concerned about, that needs to be dealt with on the smallest level, the level of individual relationships without involving anyone else. Here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to go around expressing our concern to everyone else first before we can express our concern to that person in particular. Craig Blomberg, who's a New Testament scholar and has written a commentary on the book of Matthew, says it this way. How often personal confrontation is the last stage rather than the first in Christian complaints. It frequently seems as if the whole world knows someone else's grievances against us before we are personally approached. Listen, guys, let's not be like that. We have a, a word for this biblically, it's called gossip, and gossip is something that is incredibly destructive to the unity of a local body of Christ. Okay, so we're to privately confront. First, as a first resort. And then finally, we're to privately confront a believer who is in sin. This answers or starts to answer the question of when. When are we to say something? What is the occasion in which we are to say something? First of all, when you see that this person is clearly in sin. Their actions or the behavior is clearly sinful and hurtful to them or others around them. Now be careful of the difference between assumptions As to why somebody is doing something and what is more clearly and objectively sin on the other hand. There are times in which we can see a person's actions or behaviors and we can make assumptions about them and why they're doing that based on our our perception rather than what is actually reality. Okay, let me just give you (laughs) seemingly the, the, the obvious example of this over the past year, both at large in Christendom and also in our own church, and that is masks right? There are those who are more reluctant to wear a mask, and when they see somebody who is wearing a mask, sometimes the assumption has been, well, they're only doing that because they're living in fear. They need to live in faith. Or, well, man, they're just giving way too much weight to the government here. That's just government worship. That's idolatry. Maybe, but probably not. If that's what you think, especially if that's starting to sow seeds of discord in your heart toward another brother or sister, you need to talk to them because they're probably going to add a lot more nuance to that than what you are projecting upon them as assumption as to why they feel that it's important to diligently wear a mask. On the other hand, there are those who will diligently wear a mask, think it's the right thing to do and are incredulous toward anybody who would not. And so they look at the person who's more uh, struggling with wearing a mask for whatever reason and just has a hard time with it and can lob and project assumptions upon them that their reason is because they are anti-science, anti-government and conspiracy theorists, which is just so not fair. Having had some of these conversations, I know that the answers can be a lot more nuanced and thoughtful than that. And even keeping in mind what is in their minds most honoring to God. Like there are reasonable explanations on both sides of this conversation. If you feel that they're not, you need to start having more conversations with people who see this differently than you, okay? So here's the thing, if you think you have a reason for genuine concern, and it might be an assumption, it doesn't mean don't approach them. It could be sin, it could still be appropriate to approach them, but... When you're treading in the realm of what could be assumptions for why somebody is doing something, you need to tread lightly, you need to tread carefully, and it should be more about listening and learning from that person than it should be boldly confronting them in their wrongdoing, because you just don't know, okay? So the first answer to when, especially if you're going to boldly confront somebody, is when it's clearly sin. And if it might just be an assumption, it doesn't mean you don't have the conversation, but you need to tread lightly. Secondly, the second when is when there's a relational context that's assumed by Jesus here. All right, now I'm not talking about necessarily you have to be best friends with a person to speak into their life, to challenge them in an area they might be wandering off in sin, not even necessarily in their inner circle. But the implication of Jesus's words in this passage is that you're a part of the same local community of faith. Okay, when Jesus says in kind of the third stage we'll get to of church discipline, if they do not listen even to the two or three, tell it to the church. Yes, I know the church as we know it wasn't officially established yet, but Jesus seemed to be anticipating the local church that would come. Otherwise, where would we draw the line? Are you and I responsible for the Christian who goes to church in the next town over or the next state over or even the the next church down the road from us? This is one of the reasons, by the way, why churches like ours have covenant membership, where we actually have people within this body who have committed to one another to say, yeah, I think that committing to this is a family of faith who are responsible and accountable to one another, and we care enough to be able to speak into each other's lives and challenge each other's, each other, that, that people will actually become a member of our church. That's part of the reason for that. Now we know at least who we're responsible for. Doesn't mean that those who just attend Terra as their, the church that they call home aren't to be cared for in, in a similar way. But it's just this concentric circle of understanding who are we responsible to? Who is the church? Who are who is what, what is the relational context in which we should enter in um, to speak into each other's lives. Now, let me also say that doesn't mean that we never speak into the life of a brother and sister in Christ who exists outside this church but what it does say is we have primary obligation to those who exist within the family of faith in our local church, okay? The third when, in answer to this question of um, what's the occasion in which we should approach a brother and sister who we suspect is in sin, is when your own heart is right before the Lord. That's so important. It can be so easy to twist the purposes of this from being about restoration of this individual who may be wandering to retaliation, to getting some kind of vengeance, to making them feel bad, for, for it being more about a punitive approach, uh, to make them sure that they understand how what they're doing is so wrong, to make us feel better about ourselves. If you're in that place, you should not approach that person, even if what they're doing is objectively sin. Doesn't mean you should never approach them, it means you need to get your heart right with the Lord First and then go to them. The second thing I'll say here under this point when your own heart is right before the Lord is we're to approach people humbly and not judgingly. Okay, there's a counterbalancing teaching Jesus has already given us back in Matthew 7 about a log and a speck. Do you remember that? If you've got a log in your own eye representing, yeah, you've got sin you don't even see. And it's so overt and obvious that it's like a log. And you're trying to pull the speck out of your brother's sister's eye, that's gonna come across as judging because there isn't going to be an ounce of empathy in you for what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. So we need to go to the Lord. We need to check our own hearts. We need to recognize where there's still sin that may be undealt with in our life. We need to confess that if that's the case. And I'll tell you what that's going to do. Not only is it going to make you right with the Lord, which we should be confessing sin regularly if we recognize in our life, it's also going to breed empathy and humility in you, which is going to make you that much more fruitful in these conversations with the straying brother or sister in Christ because they can tell people can sniff from a mile away is this person judging me or do they actually care fourth when when should we approach is when it's absolutely necessary okay this is particularly true this when when it's a personal grievance when somebody has done something to hurt you all right, if you see someone in sin and it's hurting themselves or others, chances are you should probably talk to them about it. But if the sin is against you, there may be times in which it's appropriate not to say anything. All right, there's this repeated theme in the New Testament, one of the tensions that we live within. Where in 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, what does that mean? It means that there are times in which love enables us to be able to overlook an offense and to quickly forget that offense that somebody has committed against you. See, when we rightly understand God's loving kindness toward us, it enables us to absorb a lot of wrongdoing from other people. So, when then might you need to say something when it's a personal grievance? Two things I can think of. Number one, if it's a repeated offense. What I mean by that is if somebody continues to treat you in a way that's hurtful and destructive, even if you're like, you know what? I love this person and you know, I want to see them grow and it doesn't really even bother me. Chances are, though, if this is a pattern in their life, they may be blind to it. They may be doing the same thing to other people and it, it becomes your obligation to say something out of love and concern for them. Even if you could just absorb the wrongdoing, okay? And then secondly, if somebody is regularly... Sinning against you in some way, and it starts to just sow seeds of bitterness in your heart toward that person, you need to say something, because that seed is only going to likely grow. Now, how do you know whether or not you can let it go, per se? Well, a good principle that I once heard was, if somebody's hurt you in some way, and you're still thinking about it the next day, you probably should say something. And then, if you're still thinking about it two two days later, and you've not said anything Well, now you're just nursing that anger and you're falling into the potential trap that Paul outlines in Ephesians 4 when he says, if you let the sun go down on your anger, if you don't deal with it, then you're just sowing seeds or rather you're giving the devil a foothold. And that's one of the things he loves to do is he loves to help us nurse our bitterness and anger toward one another. And he gets a foothold in there. So we start thinking more about more his ways than God's ways. And that's what can lead to disunity in a local body. So, these are four different answers to the question of when. When should we confront another brother or sister in love when we see sin in their lives? Now, note the goal of loving confrontation where there may be sin. At the end of verse 15, it says, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal is to win them back, the goal is not personal vindication. The goal is not making others feel bad about what they've done. The goal is restoration to you, relationally, restoration to the body of Christ. The goal is unity so that the family of God can enjoy pursuing Jesus together. The goal is unity so the family of God can be pulling together effectively in the same direction for Jesus' cause to make more and better disciples of him. That's the goal. That's why we would even lovingly confront one another to begin with. It just makes for a more full understanding and, and experience of the kingdom of God here on this side of eternity. Now, most church discipline, I put that in quotes because we don't normally think about this at the one-on-one level, right? Most church discipline happens organically at this level, probably 90% of more or more, right? So I'm giving a disproportionate amount of weight to that first verse and that first stage of this process just because that's where we operate most of the time as Christians, Hopefully. Honestly, there'd be less and less at levels two and three that we're to get to if more and more of us would be boldly taking up that responsibility and ownership for one another where we see each other wandering astray. But Jesus does talk about a second stage. If this person doesn't agree with you, doesn't mean that you're right, but if they don't agree with you, um, if they're refusing to listen to you, if They don't see it the same way as you, but you're still concerned after you've talked to them personally that they may be in sin. Then principle number two from verse 16, which is basically this: multiple witnesses may be necessary to establish a concern that you have is credible. You may need to pull in two or three other, one or two other people um, to kind of hear the evidence per se. This isn't listen. What this is not about. Is building a a coalition of people who already agree with you about what this person is doing that's so wrong um, so that you can pile on them and make them feel bad and you go in with your presuppositions. No. More effectively, what you do is you choose people you know in our community are trustworthy, mature, and they love and care about you so they can empathize with your concern. But they're also going to be able to objectively listen to the perspective of the other person too. That's what it means for them to be witnesses. They're witnessing the evidence they're hearing from both sides so that they can establish it in one of two ways. Either as credible, yes, we, we see what he or she is saying and we think this is, a, this is a sin and this is not going to end well for you or for our community. Or, hey brother or sister, I actually think you've just missed, missed some information here and I'm not so sure this is a sin like you think it is. I think we're okay. I think we understand each other now. Or maybe they establish that your pride is getting in the way. Or maybe they establish that this is an instance of <clears throat> conflict that needs to be resolved, rather than just <clears throat> objective sin on the other person's part. So that's the purpose of bringing in multiple witnesses to establish a concern as credible. Now, if that person is not interested in in hearing anything that you or the one or two other have to say if you're all convinced, yeah, this is a sin, Jesus says that there is a third stage in verse 17. A third principle here. The ante is upped, per se. Things are getting more serious, so it needs to be taken more seriously. And so the principle is that a radical response to this person may be necessary for real repentance to take place all right if, if it's established that this is clearly a sin by the two or three and the person flatly is refusing to take ownership then jesus says we're to tell it to the church tell it to the church a couple of reasons as to why first very practically this is another fail safe right what if the two or three got it wrong bringing it before the church there's even a more objective audience just in case they know something that the two or three are missing However, probably more the reason why Jesus is is saying this is the next course of action is because there's a different level of gravity that you feel when you come before your community, your family of faith, and they are lovingly pleading with you to recognize and repent from your sin. You're just going to feel the weight of that differently, right, than one person or two or three. Now, at Terra, just so you know, our expression of this is we've been down this road before, It doesn't look like bringing somebody before the entire church gathered on a Sunday morning. I mean, there are people who come who are visitors every week um, or who are just newer in general to Terra. That would be inappropriate. That would probably be more shaming to the person. Yeah, he won that race, whoever he was racing against. Whew! He's going to need some new tires soon, too. Um, Yeah, so... We don't want to shame people, okay? That's not our goal. The goal is hopefully to help this person feel the gravity of their sin. So at Terra, what this has looked like is uh, if we've gotten to this place where we need to tell it to the church, it's where we gather the covenant members of Terra Nova and or those who are already in close community with this individual, um, a la tribes, which are small groups or maybe they serve alongside them and that select group will come around this person and just try to plead with them, hey, brother, sister, Like, do you see where this is going? Do you see how scripture says this is an error, that this is sin, that this needs to be repented of? We love you. That's why we're confronting you. Now, Jesus says if they refuse to listen, even to the church, then we're told to let them. He tells us to let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That would take some time to unpack, and I'll I'll do super briefly in a moment. Let me just say that if you've been with us for a couple of years, you know that we were in 1 Corinthians, one of the letters of the Apostle Paul. A little bit later on than the Gospels, Jesus is already gone. He's ascended to heaven. And he's come in the form of the Holy Spirit to live in his church. But Paul is now one of the leaders of the church. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And they've got some real issues. You read 1 Corinthians and and you feel better about yourself. I'm not saying that we should be measuring ourselves, right? But like, you do. Because it's like, okay, we're not so bad. There were issues in Corinth. And to the degree that the, the full process of church discipline needed to be uh, taken for one of the members of the community. And so we actually get to see how this whole treat them as a Gentile tax collector plays itself out. So we unpacked that in detail. That was 1 Corinthians 5. You can go back onto our website and listen to that one. The purpose, in short, of this stage, this final let, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, is isolation for the sake of restoration. Isolation sounds like a scary word, a mean word. Why would anyone ever do that? because we want to see this person restored and because this is what it may actually take. Okay, the prayer is that the, the, the experience of isolation that this individual who's resisted his community or her community the whole way, the prayer is that the isolation would actually cause them uh, uh, to, to sober up spiritually because of what they'd miss from their experience of being intimately integrated into the family of God. And if this seems crazy to you, shocking to you, remember, Jesus is not opposed to the radical, the shocking. In this same teaching, two, three weeks ago, we talked about how he said, it would be better if you cut off your hands or your feet and plucked out your eyes and entered into the kingdom of life than it would be if you had all your appendages, but you went to hell instead because you didn't take sin seriously and you continued to wander in a direction opposite me. So Jesus is all about the radical if the purpose is restoration. And we see that here in the final stage of church discipline. So Jesus has given us, to this point, practical instruction for confronting sin. But the gears now shift, and it isn't necessarily Jesus who is the catalyst for talking about what we're about to talk about. Peter is. Because Peter hears all of this instruction for how we're to deal with sin in the community. And he comes to Jesus, and he basically asks the question of, well, what if a person continues to sin against me? How how frequently, how often am I obligated now to forgive that person? And in order to appreciate Jesus' response to Peter's suggestion, you have to first appreciate that Peter thought he was going above and beyond with his offering. Because Peter said, how many times? Seven. And he was clearly trying to be teacher's pet here, because early rabbinical literature... uh, reveals to us that the Jews at that time believed that three times was sufficient to forgive somebody who continued to sin against you. So here, Peter offers more than double of what the rabbis of his day were, plus seven was the the number of perfection uh, within Jewish culture. And so I think he thought, yeah, there's no way that this is going to be less than what Jesus would say. Well, Probably to his surprise, Jesus Jesus answers in a way that suggests that he and Peter aren't even in the same ballpark. Because Jesus says to Peter, no, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And here's the thing, that number is so much larger than the one that Peter offered, that the point isn't what that number equals out to, if you do the math. If you're trying to still count up the number of times we're to forgive, you're missing the point. The point that Jesus is making is there is no limit to the number of times that we need to forgive those who've hurt us, which may be hard to swallow when you hear that, right? It may seem unjust. So Jesus reinforces his point with Peter with a parable about an unforgiving servant. And here's how it goes. I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to recall it together with you. There's a king. The king is looking to settle his accounts with uh, several servants who are in debt to him. One in particular comes before him and owes him an amount of 10,000 talents. I'm going to unpack that number for you here because if you don't understand that number, you can't appreciate the point Jesus is about to make. One talent, which was the largest monetary unit at that time, was the equivalent of 20 years wages for a common laborer. Okay, think somebody who's you know, making $15 an hour, 40 hours a week, working hard, common laborer. A talent was the equivalent of 20 years of that person's labor. This servant owed the king 10,000 of those. It would take this servant 220,000 years to pay off the debt that he owed the king. Okay, if you want a modern equivalent, it would come out to be about $6 billion that this common laborer would owe today, a king that he or she was indebted to. Now, to make the point even more, not only was a talent the largest known monetary unit at the time, but the number 10,000 that Jesus was saying here in the Greek language was the, they didn't have a word, a word for anything bigger than 10,000. So it's the largest monetary unit, the largest number in the Greek language. Jesus is just basically saying, yeah, zillions. No way that this servant is ever going to be able to repay what he owes the king and so the king orders this man his family and his possessions to be sold and the man begs for patience promises that he'll pay it back and we're told the king has compassion and and it's not just compassion to say okay I'm not going to sell you and your family and just you know have patience and and see you try to pay this back no he, he cancels the debt altogether so that's shocking enough so that it, could, it should catch us in wonderment about what point Jesus is about to make. But it's only amplified in that we see now this first servant leaves and almost immediately he finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer. So we're talking about three and a half months pay. Another servant owed him a hundred denarii and he begins to choke this guy and demand that he pays him back. And this guy does the same thing he did. He falls at his his feet he's begging he's pleading have patience i will pay it back and the first servant throws him in prison the parable probably sounds crazy to you like oh that's so ridiculous that's the point it's meant to evoke in us stir up emotions of outrage and incredulousness at this servant's hypocrisy and lack of mercy and his blindness but then jesus brings it home by pointing back at his disciples and pointing back at you and me and he says in verse 35, So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It just got real. There's a story in the Old Testament of a prophet named Nathan who confronts King David, most famous king in Israel's line. David doesn't know yet that it's a confrontation. He comes to David and he tells him a parable about. A family who had one lamb, a beloved lamb. They loved it like it was their their own family pet. And then there was this rich guy who had this whole flock of his own. And he comes along and he takes their lamb and he slaughters it and has it for dinner. And David, being a guy with a heart after God's own heart, he's outraged by this. He should be. But then Nathan points the finger back at David and he says, David, you are the man. Referring to David having taken Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and then sent him out to the front of the battle to die. See, in our parable, this is meant to be a sobering moment when Jesus points the finger back at his disciples of realizing how ridiculous it is when we withhold forgiveness from someone else in light of how much forgiveness We've received from God. And yet we're not immune from this, are we? Now, there's a, a glass half empty and a glass half full way for us to interpret and apply this parable, which I'll share with you as we close. Here's the glass half empty way. All of us are that first servant in this parable, in that which we've been forgiven by God, this infinite amount, and we're just hypocrites. Every time that we withhold forgiveness from someone else, how could we possibly harbor a grudge towards somebody who committed a five gallon offense against us when we committed an offense the size of all the oceans combined against God and yet He forgave us of that? And what I just said is true, but it may just shame you. And I suppose on some level we should feel a little bit ashamed, but I don't think this is Jesus' point. See, there's also a glass half full way of looking at this as well. And that is the amazing resource of God's forgiveness that he has given toward us that enables you in turn to forgive others that Jesus is calling to our attention. So here's the glass half full. Understand that your capacity to forgive another who's offended you, who's hurt you in some way, never will come from you innately being a compassionate, merciful person. Or at least we all have our threshold. At which, at which point, no more compassion or mercy will we be able to have. On top of this, the hurt that others cause to you, understand, I'm not saying that's not real. I'm not saying those aren't real injustices that you've experienced. And Jesus isn't saying that either. But what he is saying here, glass half full, is that you have the resource of God's monumental grace toward you to enable a forgiving heart, even toward the worst offender even towards the worst sin or repeated sin that somebody commits against you over and over. You've probably all heard testimonies of Christians who have been able to forgive um, someone who's murdered a family member, and they're powerful moments, and we might be inclined to look at that person as just an extremely remarkable person, but they're not necessarily more innately loving or merciful than the rest of us. And they're not minimizing the atrocity of the crime their ability to forgive such an atrocity flows out of their understanding of the infinite debt that they themselves have been forgiven it flows out of a place of gratitude and love for god we're going through a bible study right now called a new it's a new ground bible study and we're exploring different passages about jesus and last week this group uh, looked at a passage in luke chapter 7 called the sinful woman forgiven and I, I love this story. Um, it says so much about the essence of the gospel and what God has done for us and where love comes from. And <clears throat> the story is about a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus over to dinner, but he doesn't offer Jesus any of the, the hospitality that was common in that day as you would a guest of honor. And there's this woman who was a known prostitute in that community, who had a former encounter with Jesus where she had experienced forgiveness from him and love from him. And she sees this because they would eat in this courtyard and <clears throat> the, the commoners, the locals, would be able to kind of stand at the edge of this courtyard and listen in, that was allowed. So she sees this and then she rushes in from the courtyard into this area in which they're eating and she lavishes the hospitality on Jesus that Simon never gave him. She cries upon his feet, wiping his feet off with, uh, with her, the tears that she's crying on his feet because Simon never washed his feet with water. She kisses his feet. and Simon never gave Jesus the, the kiss of respect and hospitality. She anoints Jesus' feet with perfume that was her probably for her previous livelihood, showing, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm going to follow you now, uh, and, whereas Simon never anointed Jesus' head with oil, which was a common showing of hospitality. She does all these beautiful things for Jesus, yet Simon is appalled. Jesus just knew who this woman was. He would know that she's a sinner. How could he be a prophet? Jesus knows Simon's thoughts, and he tells Simon a similar parable to the one that Jesus just shared today with his disciples of these two men who had debts to a moneylender. One owed 500 denarius, the other 50 denarius. Both of them, the moneylender forgave, was extremely generous and forgave both of them. And Jesus asked the question of Simon, which one loved the money more and it wasn't rocket scientist or science Simon was able to grasp this point clearly it was the one who'd been forgiven the larger debt here's what Simon did not grasp Jesus went on to explain that this woman showed him the kind of love that Simon did not not because she was a worse sinner than he but because she understood the massive debt that she had been forgiven that we all owe to a holy God whom we rebelled against in our arrogance and in our sin. It's the same idea in our parable here today. When we withhold forgiveness from others, despite what God has forgiven us of, it should be a light on the dashboard of our souls that says to us, I have lost sight of the incredible debt that I've been forgiven by God. And it should turn us back to the Lord where we humble ourselves before him and we seek fresh understanding of the incredible grace that he has poured out into our life through Jesus. Guys, this is the only way we're going to be the kind of kingdom community that can press into each other's lives where we see sin and have altruistic motives, really want the welfare of the other. And it's the only way we're going to be able to desire the best for another even when they have hurt us is if we first become well acquainted with the infinite debt that we've been forgiven and the great love that that showcases us that God has for you and I. So as we celebrate communion in just a moment would you join me in prayer as I ask God to do these things and to open our eyes in these ways this morning. Father Often we quote, and I love the verse, that your mercies are new every morning. And I thank you for that, but that significance is often lost on us. Renew our understanding of how profound that is. Please open our eyes to see how desperately we need Jesus, desperately we need the sacrifice of the Holy Lamb of God upon the cross for our sins. Open our eyes to see how significant of a debt it is that we've been forgiven of, and yet your great mercy in not making us pay for it help us also to feel the gravity and seriousness of our sin not only so that we would repent before you but so that we would enter into relationships with others with compassion and a desire to see the wandering come back to the fold to see those in sin restored and may you give us understanding to comprehend the incalculable forgiveness that you've already granted to us so that we would be able to absorb wrongdoing when it comes our way, not by white-knuckling it, but through sincere gratitude and love for you. We know that all this has been made possible through Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, and so we remember him now as we celebrate communion together and we pray all these things in his name.